What's up, Ninja Nerds? Today, we're going to be talking about pulmonary embolism, or a PE. Don't forget, you know what to do. We're taking these notes directly from our website, ninjanerd.org. Get on there, get subscribed, and get your notes here and follow along with us. Any, any ways you can keep continuing to learn is going to be really helpful. Repetition is definitely key. So we're going to get right into pulmonary embolism. We actually just got done with the gym. We had a really good pump <laughs> session. We did a lot of uh, chest and triceps today. I'm feeling pretty good. Zach, how about you? Um, I feel really swollen. <laughs> I think the reason we're doing a podcast right now is because Rob had the bright idea to just go really hard today. I can't move my stinking arm. So I was like, Rob, I, I, I don't think I can draw today, man. I think I think we got to do a podcast. I wanted to go so hard with triceps today. I was like, keep going, Zach, keep going. And he's like, hey, like I have to do a podcast. I can't. My, my arms aren't. I can't move them. I'm pretty sure I have compartment syndrome right now. Oh, my gosh. So, hey, no, doesn't matter. We're going to figure out a way to be productive and make sure that you all kind of get a good learning experience here. So we're going to kind of do what we normally do. We're going to start off with the. Uh, introduction and really the causes of a pulmonary embolism. So Zach, go ahead and take it away. Yeah. So pulmonary embolism is basically just a blood clot that develops within the pulmonary arterial circulation. It's a straightforward concept. And usually it's, there's many different causes that can occur in this situation. Uh, it could be due to a DVT. So a clot that's usually within a deeper vein, commonly within the leg that pops off, makes an embolus, moves up into the heart, gets pushed into the pulmonary circulation and gets stuck within a pulmonary artery. Or it could be like a fat embolus, which you can see in like long bone fractures. A third cause could be sometimes like an amniotic embolism that can form during pregnancy, especially during the actual uh, pregnancy process whenever they're giving birth. And then the other one is it could be due to uh, septic emboli in, in patients who have what's called infective endocarditis. And so these are important things to be able to remember. So again, big causes again to remember, guys, DVT, uh, which would particularly be the most common out of all of those. Long bone fractures that cause fat emboli, amniotic emboli that are actually going to be formed during the actual pregnancy, particularly when the woman's giving birth, or septic emboli and like an infective endocarditis. So those are the big causes. I think the big thing to focus on now is how do each one of these causes, focusing more on DVT, lead to a pulmonary embolism, okay? So first thing you have to understand, what the heck is a DVT? It's a clot or a thrombus that's forming within a deep vein in the leg. Do you guys remember a lot of these structures? There were so many of them, right? You got all your popliteal veins, your anterior tibial vein, your posterior tibial vein, your femoral vein, your external iliacs, all of those veins, you can form a clot or a thrombus within them. Now, the question is, is how does this actually occur? There's a lot of different processes by which these can occur, right? And, and the basic concept here is that this is due to what's called Virco triad. So Virco's triad says that there is three particular things that increase the risk of clot formation. And this is stasis of blood flow, hypercoagulability, and endothelial damage. So what I want us to do is, is to talk about what are these things that can actually increase stasis, increase hypercoagulability, or increase endothelial damage that lead to clots forming within the deep veins in the leg that can then break off, float up, into your inferior vena cava, go into the right atrium, into the right ventricle, get pumped out into your pulmonary circulation and get stuck in a pulmonary artery leading to a pulmonary embolism. What are those things? Glad you asked. Let's go ahead and talk about it. So the first thing is the stasis of blood flow. So you guys remember 
that whenever blood is actually kind of staying in one particular area, it increases the risk of the actual contact time between your platelets and your coagulation factors with your endothelial lining. What are those things that can increase the stasis of blood flow? Well, you have to remember anything that kind of takes away your normal muscular milking activity. You know, we have muscles that whenever they contract, they squeeze blood flow up through your veins and push it up to your heart because your veins are a low pressure system. So think about if you're not utilizing those muscles very much. So situations in which there is like a decreased ambulation, you're not mobile. So this could be like post-operative, like your bed rest because you just had a surgery or you had a fraction and you mobilized the, uh, the lower extremity because you can't move it right now. You have to allow it go, to go through that resting period. Or you just had a stroke and now you can't move that extremity because that actual extremity is paralyzed. Or you're in an airplane or you're stuck in a car for a super long period of time and you can't move because you're stuck behind a, a family who's not giving you very much leg space. I think Rob knows a lot about that. Oh, all day long. <laughs> so usually whenever it's like greater than eight hours and like these kind of like stationary positions for long period of times, those are all things that reduce that muscular milking activity, the movement of blood flow through those veins and can increase the formation of clots. The other thing is, it could be structural. So it might not just be due to a decreased ambulation. There could be structural problems with the veins. So, you know, inside of veins, we have these things called valves and they're supposed to prevent backflow. Well, what happens if those valves don't work? Well, then backflow occurs and blood can kind of accumulate in these areas of the veins. And this can, again, increase the risk of clot formation. The other thing is what if you actually compress like a large vein and blood can't move up. So let's say, for example, you have your inferior vena cave or you're like your, oh, you know, there's an example of like your iliac vein. Whenever there's a compression of your iliac vein, let's say, now blood that's supposed to come up from your anterior tibial, your posterior tibials, your peroneals, your popliteals, your femoral, all of those are supposed to drain into your iliac veins and into your IVC. If they can't drain, where's all the blood going to go? It's going to stagnate in the, the actual veins proximal to the actual iliac vein. In that situation there, all that blood's going to accumulate and it's going to increase the actual formation of clots. So what could be some things that actually compresses veins and leads to blood flow kind of stagnating within the distal veins? This could be situations like pregnancy. Whenever you're pregnant, the uterus is compressing onto the iliac vein and blood is going to be kind of backflowing or not being able to move into the inferior vena cava. So it backs up into your femoral veins, your popliteal veins, your anterior posterior tibial veins, your fibular veins. And so then, boom, you can form a clot there. The other one, it's a really rare condition, but it's called May-Thurner syndrome. And it's basically where what happens is you have your lumbar vertebrae and your right iliac artery that actually squeeze on your iliac vein. And because of doing that, you don't get blood to go up through the iliac veins and it backflows into, again, your femorals, your popliteals, your posterior anterior tibials, your fibulars. If it stagnates, boom, clot formation. The last situation kind of goes along with this, which is obesity. Anytime you have an increase like abdominal obesity, there is again an increased compression of those actual vessels and again, reduction of venous return. So again, I think the big thing to remember for stasis guys is decreased ambulation, structurally problems with the veins like varicose veins or reduced movement of blood flow through the veins because of compression that's preventing the movement of blood flow, such as pregnancy, obesity, and lastly, May-Thurner syndrome. The other thing that can lead to clots forming is something called hypercoagulability. So there's many different mechanisms behind this. Some of them can be congenital or hereditary, if you will. So you might be born with them. 
And usually these are situations in which there is an increase in the amount of uh, coagulant enzymes that want to cause clots. We call these procoagulants. And so this would be, for example, there's a disease called factor V Leiden. If there's an increase in this actual protein, there is, again, an increased risk to form clots. The other one is called a prothrombin gene mutation. So if you have an increased amount of prothrombin, you're going to make more thrombin. More thrombin leads to more clot formation. The other end of this is you could have decreased numbers of anticoagulants. So anticoagulants don't want to form clots. So if we have less of those, then you're going to be, again, more likely to be procoagulant, more thrombotic in that situation. So it will be some actual diseases where there is a decrease in anticoagulant activity. So this would be something called protein C, protein S deficiency, or antithrombin 3 deficiency. So if there's a reduction in these actual enzymes, you're at increased risk of forming clots. And if you have increased factor V Leiden or prothrombin, you're at increased risk of clots. The other ones is it might not be genetic or hereditary. It could be acquired. And so patients who are pregnant or are taking estrogen containing oral contraceptives, lots of estrogen acts like a procoagulant. So therefore, you increase the formation of clots or malignancies. So any kind of malignancy, particularly like a pancreatic carcinoma or a lung carcinoma, definitely has the ability to increase the actual activity of procoagulants. You know, another disease is called nephrotic syndrome in younger children where they get a damage to their glomerular basement membrane then they don't have good filtration. And because of that, there's so much porous membrane there that they can allow for proteins to get filtered out into the actual urine, like albumin. Because of that, if they get rid of a lot of their proteins, one of those big proteins, not just albumin, but is also called antithrombin-3. They lose that protein in their urine. Antithrombin-3, do you guys remember what kind of enzyme that was? An anticoagulant. So if you have less of that because you're peeing it out, you're going to be now more at risk of forming clots. And so that's another situation. Another one is called antiphospholipid syndrome. And antiphospholipid syndrome can be both acquired, but it can also be genetic. And in this situation, it's usually associated with lupus or SLE. And so you develop these antibodies that attack a lot of phospholipids of cell membranes and anticoagulant enzymes like protein C and protein S. And so these antibodies definitely decrease a lot of your anticoagulant activity and, again, increase the risk of forming clots. The last one here that I want you to remember is HIT, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And so usually someone would have to be exposed to heparin at some point in time in their past. Because what happens is once you're exposed to heparin, the body's immune system for some reason develops antibodies against the heparin. And it actually cross-reacts with these molecules that are present on platelets called platelet factor 4. And then what happens is the platelets start sticking and sticking and sticking with one another and increase the activation of other platelets to come and stick with one another. And this leads to a platelet plug which leads to a clot formation. And then again, if it breaks off, you can form a, again, a PE if it actually breaks off from a DVT. So these are big things to remember for the hypercoagulable states. The last thing is endothelial damage or injury. So the endothelium is the tunica, tunica internal lining. So it's basically the one that's going to be the most inner lining of the blood vessel. If you damage that, you lose the ability of those cells to make nitric oxide and prostacyclin that na naturally inhibits platelets. So if you damage them, now you don't have the ability to release nitric oxide and prostacyclin. So now the platelets are super activated. And so they can come and stick to the actual blood vessel lining and form a clot. What are the things that could actually do this? Well, one is surgery. If anytime you're cutting through, you're doing a C 
C-section, you're performing an orthopedic surgery, you're cutting through tissue and likely cutting through a vessel. Smoking, definitely directly, the nicotine within the actual uh, 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 smoking or tobacco actually is what's potentially able to be cytotoxic to the endothelial cells. Obesity can actually create a pro-inflammatory state. Not only can obesity cause stasis of blood flow through compressing large veins, but it can also cause inflammation, which can also alter the endothelial lining as well. And last thing is if you have any kind of like vascular hardware, so you have an IV, you have a central venous catheter, anything like that that's in the actual vascular system, it can cause injury to the actual blood vessel and again, increase the risk of clot formation. So those would be all the things that are important to remember specifically that can cause clots according to Verco's triad. And these are the big things to remember, especially for the DVTs. And now, Zach, go, quickly going off of a DVT there, uh, if you if you really wanted to quickly test it, what test could you what bedside test could you use for a DVT? So there's a lot of different tests that you could use, and, and we'll get into this in a little bit. But there's some things that you could do just by physical examination. You can also do something they don't. Sometimes people don't necessarily recommend it, but you can do something called a Homan sign kind of test, where you kind of do what's called dorsiflexion of the uh, of the ankle to see if it precipitates pain. But a lot of the time, you can just go ahead and whip out an ultrasound and just do what's called a compression um, ultrasound examination and see if you can find, particularly where you look for a vein, does it completely compress. And if it doesn't, there's a possibility that there's a clot within that area. Is home and sign just not as an accurate of a test be- yeah. being that you have an ultrasound right there? Yeah, I would say that it's not necessary. So there's there's two th- aspects to this. One is the, that they say it's not super sensitive or specific. And then the other thing is there's this questionable thought, like what if you dorsiflex their ankle and by some chance it has the probability of breaking off the clot that's within maybe a vein yeah. somewhere within yeah. like the yeah. calf and then go ahead and circulate down now and become an embolus. Yeah. So I'd say the best thing that you're going to do, we'll talk about later, is going to be definitely an ultrasound. Yeah. And I know I, I, I jumped ahead there a little bit, but I was I was excited to really like because I, I have heard about home inside. I've I've, yeah. learned, I've learned that test and I have learned some mixed reviews about it. Um, but obviously, if you're in that type of a setting, you have an ultrasound right there. Yeah, yeah you're going to choose that one. Every Absolutely. Time. Yeah, and it's one of those things that you'll definitely likely see on the exam. So I definitely think it is important to know that terminology, the home sign for sure skis. So the other causes I think that are less significant to remember that are causes of PE. Again, DVT is going to be by far the most common one. So remember Virgo's triad. I think that's the most important thing. And then categorizing the causes in those. The next thing is those air emboli, the fat emboli, the amniotic emboli, the septic emboli. There's one thing called air emboli. We didn't really kind of mention this in the cause, but sometimes you can see this whenever a patient's like going scuba diving and then they they descend. And then what happens is they start kind of coming back up to the surface really, really quickly. And when that happens, they bring into this nitrogen. And due to the pressure changes and the solubility changes within the gases, it forms these air bubbles. And this can, again, get stuck within the pulmonary circulation. And this is called the bends. So that's one type of etiology, not super common. The other one is if you get like a really bad long bone fracture and you release massive amounts of fat from the actual medullary cavity into the pulmonary circulation, there's a theoretical process that it could actually cause enough of an emboli to get stuck in the pulmonary circulation. The other one is uh, amniotic embolus. So during like premature birth, whenever there's the opening of the amniotic cavity that leaks into the circulation, uh, proteins, particularly they actually get leaked into 
the circulation, these are able to potentially form clots within the pulmonary circulation. And the last one is bacterial emboli, usually particularly septic emboli in patients who have like infective endocarditis. But it's really important to remember in order for you to have pulmonary emboli due to septic emboli or infective endocarditis, it has to be on the right side of the heart. So more likely it's going to be that tricuspid valve. And if you guys remember from our infective endocarditis podcast, what was the most common organism that actually loves to interrogate the tricuspid valve? It's that Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA specifically, and IV drug abuse. And so that's a big one because again, if you get like a little a micro vegetation there on the tricuspid valve, break a piece of it off, gets into the right ventricle, into the pulmonary artery, boom, you get a septic emboli that gets stuck in the pulmonary circulation. And again, if you get a, any kind of emboli that's stuck in the pulmonary circulation, you reduce blood flow to the alveoli, and they're going to see all the pathophysiological processes that we're going to talk about next. All right, great. So by far, though, DVT, most common, remembering Verkos triad, you can't go wrong with that. Let's move into the pathophysiology, Zach, and then kind of getting in a little bit more into the clinical manifestations. Yeah, so when we talk about the pathophysiology, definitely, again, it's important to remember that DVT is going to be the most common cause. So whenever you have a clot that's forming within a deep vein in the leg, breaks off for whatever reason, breaks off moves up through the actual venous circulation within the lower extremity into into the IVC. When it gets plumped in from the IVC into the right atrium and they can go into the right ventricle. From the right ventricle, it moves up into the pulmonary trunk and then from there it can bifurcate into the pulmonary arteries. That clot can get stuck anywhere along that link. They can get stuck in the pulmonary trunk and cause a disastrous saddle embolus. It can get stuck in a right pulmonary artery, left pulmonary artery, and again, cause a lot of problematic issues here. And so what are some of the things that we're gonna have to talk about? Well, the first thing is think about if a patient comes in and has a PE, look for potential signs of a DVT first, since that's the most common cause. So look, or even ask them specific questions. So if one of the things to do is look at their actual lower extremity, do they have one extremity that's more swollen than the other one? So is their right extremity more swollen? Is it more edematous? Is there redness also associated with it? And is there a lot of pain whenever you're compressing onto that area? So those are big things to be thinking about, especially if a patient has a DVT. And then again, like Rob said, look for potential home sign. That's one of those big things that you'll see on the exam. And again, what you're doing is you're looking for a patient who has swelling, pain, redness of the lower extremity, particularly on one side, and it's asymmetric in comparison to the other side. And what you do is you just cause a dorsiflexion of the foot, and it precipitates a lot of pain within the actual calf. That's one potential sign that you could see in a patient who has a DVT. Now, once you flick that clot off and it gets stuck into the pulmonary circulation, what are all the things that we can see with this? There are so many different things that we're going to have to talk about. So let's dive right into that. Zach, let me cut you off really, really quick. Just a quick fact check. You mentioned the saddle emboli. That it, that's blocking off what right and left pulmonary artery completely. So th- yeah, so it gets stuck right at the pulmonary trunk. So if your pulmonary trunk and right as it bifurcates into the pulmonary artery, the right and left pulmonary artery, it's going to get stuck right at that pulmonary okay. trunk right before it bifurcates. Which is which is usually a poor prognosis. For oh that. my gosh, yeah, that would yeah. usually be enough to put a patient into like a, an abrupt cardiogenic shock, maybe okay. a PEA arrest. So yeah, definitely a scary one to see. So I think one of the big things to know is, is what are some of the problematic issues that we can see if a patient develops a pulmonary embolus? So obviously the first thing that we have to worry about is if it gets stuck inside of the pulmonary artery or it gets it's maybe a little bit farther down, it's like a pulmonary arterial, what's the primary problem with this? Well, if you get a clot there, now what you're doing is you're reducing the actual perfusion to the alveoli. So the alveoli are those small little structures inside of your lungs that are basically designed 
trying to be able to have oxygen saturated within them so that when blood comes to them, the oxygen can move from the alveoli into the blood. But if you have a reduction in blood flow going to the alveoli, it doesn't matter how much oxygen you put into that alveoli, it's not going to be able to perfuse into the actual circulation because there's no blood to carry the oxygen or to pick up the oxygen, depending upon how significant the pulmonary embolism is. And so that's a problematic issue because if you're not able to get oxygen into the bloodstream, this can lead to hypoxemia. And hypoxemia is whenever there's a low concentration of oxygen within inside of the bloodstream. Now, that may show up whenever a patient puts on a little pulse ox that you see a very low O2 saturation. But now whenever somebody has a low O2 saturation, they may not necessarily just say, it might not be the only thing that you see on the monitor, but there may be other associated compensatory mechanisms that you see with this. So one of the things could be whenever you have hypoxemia, low oxygen, what it does is it activates chemoreceptors, the peripheral chemoreceptors, and like your aortic bodies, your carotid bodies, activates your glossopharyngeal and vagus nerve, sends that to the actual medulla, and your medulla says, oh my gosh, there's definitely low oxygen within the blood. Maybe they're not breathing fast enough. Let's have the patient breathe faster so they can breathe in more oxygen, even though that's not the problem. It's a clot within the pulmonary vessel. So one of the things is you'll look at a patient who may be hypoxemic and they're breathing fast. They're tachypnic. They're short of breath and they're taking in very deep inhalations. That may be one particular sign. The other thing is that whenever you have hypoxemia, you're also telling your medullary system to say, oh, maybe there's also poor perfusion to the alveoli. And so one of the things it'll do is it'll increase your sympathetic drive to the actual heart and increase your heart rate. And if you increase your heart rate, there's a theory that maybe you'll push more of the actual blood to the alveoli so that you can eliminate CO2 and pick up oxygen. That's the theory, right? And so that's the other thing that you can see if a patient is hypoxemic because they may be tachycardic. They also may be tachypnic with an increased respiratory rate, deep inhalations, and short of breath. The other thing that is also concerning here is whenever you have a patient who is, let's say, breathing super, super fast, right, because they're trying to breathe in all this oxygen, because they're hypoxemic. So it's this reflexive process. Whenever you breathe fast, you inhale as much oxygen into the alveoli, but you also exhale a lot of CO2 out of the alveoli into the atmosphere. And so what happens to the CO2 levels then subsequently within the bloodstream then? You're exhaling a massive amount of CO2 that this leads to a low CO2 within inside of the bloodstream that increases your pH and that's called a respiratory alkalosis. This is a common manifestation because you are tachypnic and you're breathing at a fast rate and also taking in deep breaths. And so that's going to be a complication of you breathing at a faster rate. The other thing that's really interesting here is whenever you have all of this clot within the pulmonary vessels, when the platelets are kind of stuck within that pulmonary vessel and the clot stuck there, they release a lot of cytokines, adenosine diphosphate, thromboxane A2, serotonin, and particularly the thromboxane A2 and serotonin love to cause the smooth muscle and the bronchioles to constrict. And that makes the actual bronchial airway smaller, and that can lead to dyspnea, and it can maybe lead to wheezing. So not only do those uh, molecules, inflammatory mediators like ADP, thromboxane, A2, serotonin, cause bronchoconstriction, but it also causes pulmonary vasoconstriction. And whenever you have this intense pulmonary vasoconstrictive response, what this does is it reduces 
the oxygen supply to the part of the lungs, which is where there's a clot going through it, right? And so if you're not getting blood flow to the part of the lungs, there's a possibility that you cause infarction of the lungs and maybe even lead to homoptesis, so coughing up blood. The other thing is whenever you have that intense pulmonary vasoconstriction, you're squeezing the pulmonary vessels. That's increasing the pressure, right? Because when you squeeze vessels, you reduce the actual diameter of the pulmonary vessel. That increases the resistance to blood flow and increases the pressure within the pulmonary arteries. If you increase the pressure in the pulmonary arteries, that's going to put a lot of stress on the right side of the heart. And whenever you put so much stress on the right side of the heart, a couple of different things can happen is you can actually cause like an acute right heart failure. And so you can start to see some potential signs of right heart failure. So they start having right ventricular dysfunction, particularly. And this may lead to a jugular venous distension. So their jugular vein may be distended. On top of that, they may have a reduction in their stroke volume, the amount of blood that they can pump out of the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart. So there's a reduction in cardiac output to the right from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart. Now think about that. If there's a reduction in blood flow from the right to the left heart, that means that the left heart is getting less blood flow. That means that the left heart gets a reduction in its preload. If it has a reduction in its preload, that means it's a reduction in its stroke volume. If there's a reduction in its stroke volume, there's a reduction in its cardiac output. And if you reduce cardiac output, you drop the patient's systemic blood pressure and cause them to become hypotensive. And this could be a scary thing that you could see. Now, on top of that, if they become super hypotensive, what's one of the reflexes that we see with these patients? One thing is that whenever you become hypotensive, it triggers your sympathetic nervous system to try to increase your heart rate so they become more tachycardic. On top of that, it also tries to cause the heart to beat even harder. So the sympathetic supply to the left side of the heart will try to increase intensely to squeeze more blood out to make it more hyperdynamic. And then lastly, you're going to cause an intense vasoconstriction of the actual systemic vessels to increase resistance and increase blood pressure. And so these are some of the potential things that you can see in a patient as a pulmonary embolus. Man, that was a lot, Rob, for the for a lot of the features and the complications. There's a lot going on with pulmonary embolism. And it's it's sometimes you just you hear it so commonly and you don't realize how much goes into this. It's it's a scary condition for for sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But even more so than that, it's even I'm guessing difficult to diagnose yeah it, it can be difficult yes no. to diagnose yeah i think like sometimes especially if you don't have like a lot of these common symptoms like if you have a patient coming in who's just like rip-roaring hypoxemic and tachycardic and hypotensive and they have a lot of the perfect signs uh, that potentially would lead you to think about a pulmonary embolism that's great but sometimes they may not present with a lot of these signs they may just be a little bit short of breath yeah. and and that's really it not always clear no. no no and so sometimes it's not super obvious that they're having a pulmonary embolism Perfect. So let's go ahead and transition into diagnostics. I know there's a lot that goes into it, but the one that I recall hearing about is Wells criteria. It's a pretty commonly utilized uh, criteria for PEs. Right. Yeah. And so definitely the Wells criteria is definitely a big one. I think one of the big things to do is to have kind of like a, an approach to these patients. So you can order a bunch of like random labs if you want to. So some of the things that you could consider, it may help to lead you down the potential thought of a diagnosis. Uh, you can get a CBC. I think that's always a good thing in a patient who has a pulmonary embolus. Start off with a CBC. You can't go wrong with that. Some of the things that you may pick up on that is what if they have a, a low platelet count? What if they have a low number of red blood cells? Oh, I wonder if they have that heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Look to see if they've had any exposure to heparin lately. That could be one thing that you could see. Get a BMP. A BMP is also really good because of a couple reasons. One is you want to look to see what their renal function is. It shouldn't be a reason that you don't get the study, um, but if a patient has severe renal failure, there could be a reason to potentially withhold getting a CTA, but you really shouldn't withhold that because if a patient is near death, I think at the end of the day, you definitely need to get the study that makes a difference 
difference in their ultimate treatment process. So that's another thing to definitely I would check out is get a BMP. The other thing is it's not a bad idea to get an ABG. So an arterial blood gas is important because what it could tell us is are they in the early stages of a PE or are they in the later stages of a PE? So in the early stages of a PE, when they first have that clot that gets stuck within the pulmonary vessel, they get hypoxemia. They get a reduced blood flow to their alveoli. Their oxygen concentration within the blood drops. Their chemoreceptors get stimulated. And then what happens is they breathe faster. When they breathe faster, they blow off their CO2. And so one of the things that you may see is they may have hypoxemia and associated respiratory alkalosis because they're breathing off their CO2. In the later stages of the pee, let's say that they have been breathing at a fast rate for a long period of time and they are tuckered out. They're, they're just so weak now. Their muscles are getting weak. So now they're not able to uh, breathe at a super fast rate. Their tachypnea is now no longer going to be tachypnic. Now they're actually breathing a little bit slower and they're retaining more CO2. If they retain more CO2, that actually causes the pH to drop and they become acidotic. And so you can see this as they start to tucker out. The other thing that I'm not a big fan of it, but it's something that you have to learn about is a D-dimer. So D-dimers can potentially tell us about a lot of fibrinolytic activity that's going on or just like inflammation within the body in general. If you guys remember the mechanism of actually hemostasis is that whenever you have a clot that's already done, it's been formed and you want to break the clot down. Plasmin is one of those particular enzymes that breaks down the fibrin into things like uh, fibrin degradation products and things like D-dimers is one of those fibrin degradation products. And so that's one of the things that's important to remember. One of the things that they could say is what if you have a D-dimer that's super elevated, like it's greater than 500. Does that mean that there's a potential that you have a clot somewhere within the body? Yes, it definitely is possible, but it's definitely not very specific. Uh, it's just one of those things that, yes, it is a possibility. If you have a very high D-dimer, like greater than 500, there is a possibility that you have a DVT or a PE. What really helps us to have a very specific approach to determining a patient's likelihood or suspicion of having a PE is, like Rob said, the Wells criteria. And so one of the things with the Wells criteria is if you have a high score, this you definitely have a higher degree of suspicion for a PE, and that'll determine what kind of test you'll actually get. Or if you have a low Wells criteria score, then you have a low suspicion. You may order other different types of tests based upon that low probability. And the score that we kind of look for is, is it less than four or greater than or equal to four? So if your Wells uh, criteria score is less than four, it tells me that the PE is relatively unlikely. You don't have a very high like pretest probability. And so then it would be not too bad of an idea to order that non-specific D-dimer test. So then you would check a D-dimer level. If the D-dimer is less than 500, that tells me that there's not a really strong chance of having a clot within the body. And I can pretty much like exclude like a PE or DVT. If the D-dimer is greater than or equal to 500, I can't necessarily exclude the fact that there is a potential clot somewhere. And I may need to do another test like a CT angiogram of their pulmonary vessels. Okay, so that's the first thing. Less than four, low probability, the D-dimer is less than 500. You can pretty much exclude that there's a PE. If it's greater than or equal to 500, you can't necessarily exclude it. And if you think that they definitely have a possibility of having a PE, you get a CTPA, which is going to check those pulmonary vessels. Now, if their score is greater than or equal to four, now you have a high degree of suspicion. You don't want to waste your time checking a dang D-dimer. Send them right to the most definitive test, which is going to be getting a CT pulmonary angiogram. 
That's going to be the good thing. And what it'll do is it'll basically shoot contrast into the pulmonary vessels and show you where is the actual contrast not continuing to fill into the pulmonary vessels. Oh, there's a clot right there. And now the contrast isn't moving past that. Oh, there they have a pulmonary embolus. And you can go ahead and stop there. And Zach, if I'm not mistaken, CTPA, that's going to be your your uh, gold standard? Yeah, that's definitely the definitive diagnostic test for sure. The You technically, like if you wanted to pick the most uh, gold standard test of all tests, it would be a pulmonary angiogram because that's going to be like the best test that you could possibly do because it's like a real time. You shoot contrast into the vessels and it just subtracts everything around it except for the vessels, but it's like super invasive and you wouldn't necessarily want to do that firsthand, but that is a possible test. But I'd say like right away, if you see that you boom, you got a clot, boom, it's a PE. You don't need to do anything else. If it's normal, and there is no PE, then you excluded a PE. <laughs> but if it's indeterminate and you're like, dang it, I don't know what the heck, if there's a PE or not, it's hard to tell. That's when you can go to the next other test. Like you were saying, like, what's the most of like, there's no better test. It's truly going to be the one that'll determine if you have the diagnosis. That would be a pulmonary angiogram. If my CTPA was indeterminate and I had a high degree of suspicion, I could push to get a pulmonary angiogram of them. Gotcha. Now, I think some of the other things that's important to remember is if you do have a contraindication to the CTPA because you have a contrast allergy, like you go into severe anaphylactic shock or you're in-stage renal disease and there is a super high risk of contrast-induced nephropathy, that's a possibility. And in those situations, it wouldn't be a bad idea to continue the alternative, uh, something called a VQ scan. So that's another thing that's called the ventilation perfusion scan. It's a nuke med study. And that's another type of thing that you could do. But definitely, if you wanted to pick like the best test that you could ever pick, it's going to be a pulmonary angiogram. You take a catheter into the pulmonary vessels, you shoot with contrast, and it'll show your entire pulmonary circulation and show where there's a cutoff and where there's potential clot as well. So just to clarify, because I'm, I'm learning here too, it's actually really interesting. CTPA is pretty much like your go-to test. It's not that invasive, obviously. But if you want to talk about, maybe you get a question on an, on an exam saying, hey, what is the true gold standard best test you can possibly do? Pulmonary angiogram. Yeah, pulmonary angiogram would be that okay, one. Yeah. Gotcha, cool. So usually like kind of like if they ever asked you that, like, okay, what's the first test that you would like your first line test? And if you have a high degree of suspicion, boom, you say CTPA. Got it. Um, and if you have a contraindication to that where they can't get that, then you'd say a VQ scan. But if they said, what is the gold standard, most definitive diagnostic test, no matter what, you say pulmonary angiogram. Beautiful. So the other thing that I think is important to remember is, is there other things that we can utilize to help us in the diagnosis of uh, a PE? So we obviously have that patient who we start off with some laps. We fired off a CBC, a BMP. We had an AVG. We had a D-dimer. We use the Wells criteria to guide which tests we're going to determine. So less than four, you go ahead and again, you can check a D-dimer. Less than 500, boom, don't don't do anything else. Just send them home. If it's greater than 500 or equal to 500, okay, I might need to send that again. A CTPA. If they're again, Wells criteria greater than or equal to four, get the CTPA. If you see the clot, boom, diagnosis is done. If you don't see it, boom, no PE, stop testing. And then if it's not determinant, I can't really determine, follow up with a pulmonary angiogram. If you can't get a CTPA in the first place because they have a contraindication, a VQ scan will be the alternative to that. 
The other things that you could do and just as additional tests to add on here, let's say that you don't have a lot of things that you're going off of and you get an EKG on the patient because they're presenting with dyspnea. That's a common reason to check a patient for, you know, some type of MI or arrhythmia, anything of that nature. You get an EKG. Sometimes this may be somewhat beneficial because one of the most common findings is actually sinus tachycardia. So the patient has an increased sympathetic drive. So they're trying to increase their heart rate. So the sinus tachycardia would be the most common finding. But the other one that's really important to remember because they love to ask this on the exam is called the S1Q3T3 pattern. And basically what this is, is when you look at lead one, you see a deep S wave. And when you look at lead three, you see a deep Q wave as well as an inverted T wave. And those are the big things to be able to remember. Uh, other things you could potentially additionally see is like a right bundle branch block. But I think the big thing is looking for sinus tachycardia and the S1Q3T3, especially on your exams. That's a big one to remember. Other things that you could potentially have and test a patient for is you could get like a chest x-ray. Chest x-ray is not a bad thing. Usually one of the things that I've always kind of been told is if you have a patient who you suspect has a pulmonary embolism and they have a normal chest x-ray, then you should have a degree of high suspicion of a PE because if a patient's hypoxemic, they're breathing at a super fast rate, they're short of breath, they have hemoptysis, uh, they have hypoxemia, and you look at their chest x-ray, they don't have a pneumothorax, they don't have pneumonia, they don't have a pleural effusion, they don't have like uh, some massive problematic issue there, then it's likely a pulmonary embolus. And guess what? Their chest x-ray is generally going to be normal. In a perfect world, if you were so lucky to see, you may see something called a Westermark sign or a Hampton's hump, but I really wouldn't even bother wasting your time learning about these because it's just super not common. The other thing is that we talked about is, again, that CTPA. That's the big thing. It's really important to be able to understand that is the one of the first-line tests. The VQ scan is an alternative to the actual CTPA. And, again, the most definitive diagnostic test, there is no better test, is the pulmonary angiogram. It's just super invasive, and you don't want to put somebody through that if you don't need to. Um, other things that you could actually do here, and I think it's actually somewhat beneficial, is if you have a patient who is hypotensive, they're tachycardic, they're hypoxemic, they're breathing at a super fast rate, it's not a bad idea to get a bedside echocardiogram. And I think one of the reasons why is you want to really look at that right side of the heart. Generally, when you look at the right side of the heart, you're looking to see what are the effects from that pulmonary vasoconstriction. Whenever they have that pulmonary vasoconstriction, the right Right ventricle gets super dilated. And so they'll have this gargantuous right ventricle that's way bigger than the left ventricle. And it's also not going to be squeezing as well. So there's a decreased contractility of the right ventricle and a big fat right ventricle. So that's one particular thing to be thinking about as well in these patients, because that can determine if a patient is more in that kind of like massive PE versus a submassive PE. So generally, whenever somebody has like a submassive PE, they definitely have right ventricular dysfunction, but they're hemodynamically stable. And if you have someone who has a massive PE, they also have right ventricular dysfunction, but they're more hemodynamically unstable. So it's important to be able to get that echocardiogram to be able to determine what kind of category they fit into. Do they have right ventricular dysfunction in general? So that would be the things to do. And again, I can't express this enough. Rob asked this right in the beginning is, what if you are trying to look for that patient who maybe has a DVT and you think that is the cause? The best thing is to get that compression ultrasound to go ahead and consider checking those lower extremities, looking for a DVT. And if you find that you see that there is no compression, you see an actual thrombus within the vessel, you can diagnose a DVT as well. And so those are a lot of the tests that we could do here, Rob.
All right. Sounds great. Pretty thorough. In fact, very thorough. Uh, but there's a lot that goes into this. So I think now is the perfect time to transition over into treatment. And then we'll kind of finish up there with any other uh, final thoughts. All right. So we talked about the treatment of pulmonary embolus. We have to first off determine the patient's hemodynamic stability and their status, right? Are they hemodynamically stable or hemodynamically unstable? Because that's going to determine the type of treatment approach that we have for the patient. So first thing, if we have a patient who has a pulmonary embolus, we diagnosed it. Again, we went through the whole process. Wells criteria, oh, greater than or equal to four. We, we definitely sent them to get a CTPA. We find the clot. Boom. Done. We go ahead. We throw an echo on. We look to see if they have any right ventricular dysfunction. Boom. Oh, we see that. Okay, what do we do with that information? So if we have a patient who is normal blood pressure, they're not super tachycardic, they don't have an altered mental status, they don't have like a severe pleuritic chest pain, and again, they are hemodynamically robust. In that situation, you can actually forgo kind of going into the more aggressive measures, and you can go into something called anticoagulation, which we'll talk about, or if they have a contraindication to getting anticoagulation, you can consider something called an IVC filter. Now, if the patient is hemodynamically unstable, they're hypotensive, they're super tachycardic, they're hypoxemic, they have an altered mental status, they're near the point of going into an obstructive shock, then you go for the more invasive, intense types of treatment measures. And so this is when you consider like TPA, tissue plasminogen activator, or you go and you snake the actual clot out of the pulmonary vessel and you're doing something called an embolectomy if they have like a contraindication to getting TPA. And so that's the first thing to do is again, are a hemodynamically stable anticoagulation or IVC filter if contraindicated to anticoagulation? Are they hemodynamically unstable? TPA, if they have a contraindication to that, embolectomy. Now, the next thing is we should actually grade our PEs. So not only is it important to understand if they're hemodynamically unstable, but it's also important to know a little bit more about some other things. So for example, if I have something called a submassive PE and a massive PE, this is also really important. So for a submassive PE, this is again a patient who is hemodynamically stable, but they have right ventricular dysfunction. So that right ventricle is super big. It's bigger than the left ventricle. It's dilated. There's decreased contractility in that situation. If a patient has a massive pulmonary embolism, that would be the thing that Rob pointed out. If you have a clot stuck within the pulmonary trunk as it before it bifurcates, a saddle embolus, that would put a patient to become super hemodynamically unstable. They're going to basically get no blood flow going from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart. That would put them into a very hemodynamically unstable situation, super hypotensive, super tachycardic, super hypoxemic. On top of that, think about the amount of afterload that you're going to put that right ventricle under. It's going to cause this massive right ventricular dysfunction. And so it's important to remember when we talk about hemodynamic stability, we said hemodynamically stable, they get AC, anticoagulation, if they have a contraindication, a filter. On top of that, you can just add into this. If a patient has a submassive PE, they are generally hemodynamically stable, right ventricular dysfunction. In that situation, they get anticoagulation or an IVC filter. If they have a massive PE or a saddle embolus that makes them hemodynamically unstable and they have right ventricular dysfunction, those patients get TPA. If they have a contraindication, they get an embolectomy. I hope that made sense. Now, Let's talk about that treatment process, starting with anticoagulation and then going into, again, they can't get that. So maybe they need an IVC filter, talking about TPA, talking about embolectomy. All right. So the first thing is when we have a patient who is a submassive PE, in that situation, we consider 
anticoagulation. The anticoagulation is not necessarily going to break off the clot. It's not going to break down the clot or anything like that. It's just to prevent the further propagation, the development of the clot. And so it works by being able to decrease your hypercoagulable state and prevent further clot formation. So there's so many different types of anticoagulants that we can utilize here. One of the first ones to remember is heparin. Heparin is a very commonly utilized one. There's unfractionated heparin, there's low molecular weight heparin. And I think the big thing to remember is your unfractionated heparin is the more common one that you'll use when a patient's in the hospital. They're inpatient and we want to monitor them very, very consistently and frequently to make sure that they're not too therapeutic where they're at risk of bleeding or under therapeutic or sub-therapeutic and they're at risk of still actually causing that clot to get bigger and continue to propagate. And so we utilize something called a PTT to actually monitor the therapeutic effectiveness of unfractionated heparin. So that'd be more of your in-hospital patients. The other thing here is low molecular weight heparin. So low molecular weight heparin is actually no requirement to measure the PTT. You don't have to kind of consistently keep checking that. So this is a good one for an outpatient situation. Whenever you have a patient who's going to be having a potentially like a submassive P, it's not very bad, and you're sending them home, you can continue them on something called low molecular weight heparin. And that's a really good situation to think about in those patients. The only thing I would consider though, is if a patient has really, really bad chronic kidney disease, I would consider being very careful prescribing them low molecular weight heparin because it can actually accumulate a little bit more in these patients. If they have poor renal elimination of that actual molecule, they can be a little bit more therapeutic and a little bit higher risk of bleeding. And so that's one of the things to consider if you're putting a patient on low molecular weight heparin and they have chronic kidney disease or severe kidney disease, it could actually cause them to accumulate that a little bit more. So that would be your heparin. The other ones that I want you to consider is your DOAX. So these are your direct acting oral anticoagulants. So in these situations, you have your 10A inhibitors like rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, and then you have your less commonly utilized one, the 2A inhibitors, your thrombin inhibitors like dabigatran. In these situations, you can utilize these. There's also less monitoring for these patients, a lot of less drug interactions. And so I think that's one of the benefits of these. Um, also way lower risk of bleeding and hemorrhage in comparison to warfarin. So generally, DOACs are a good kind of thing to actually consider to continue outpatient for about three to six months. Um, and those would be the ones that I would utilize in these situations if we're outpatient for a, a kind of more of a three to six month term. Warfarin, you can do that as an alternative to DOACs for some particular reason if you don't want to consider a DOAC. Again, it's the same thing. Do this for about three to six months. Generally, you have a patient on heparin in the hospital and then you bridge them over to warfarin for about the first five days because you're just a little bit more hypercoagulable when you start the warfarin. So you use like low molecular weight heparin to bridge you through that. But again, one of the things with warfarin as a problematic issue here is that you have to have to continue to keep monitoring their INR because the INR is basically telling you the level of therapeutic effectiveness of the actual uh, warfarin. So if you have a patient who has a very, very high INR, that means that the warfarin is working a little bit too good. Now you're at risk of bleeding. Or if the INR is really low, then you might actually not be having enough effectiveness or a sub-therapeutic level of the warfarin. And so that's important to remember to make sure that you're keeping it within the therapeutic range that you desire. So if you have a patient who you're starting an anticoagulation, you can consider heparin, you can consider a DOAC, or you can consider warfarin. If they have a contraindication to anticoagulation for whatever reason, then you would need to put in something like an IVC filter. So an IVC filter is basically, it's just like this little like sieve that you kind of stick up with an IVC. And what happens is any kind of clots that are basically coming up from the lower extremities, from a DVT that you have, it won't be able to propagate and enter the pulmonary circulation. It gets, it gets stuck by that, that, uh, that little kind of like filter there and you can't get from an IVC 